Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, thank you for listening to the show. I appreciate it. And and today uh, we have someone that, man, it, it, it took actually less time than I thought. She's very busy. She's got stuff in Ottawa. She's got stuff here. Ex-city counselor, um, great mom from all appearances. And, and, and everything leads to this moment, which is um, I'm very excited about having uh, Tracy Gray, MP, Kelowna Lake Country, in studio. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Rick. I really, really appreciate it. So, uh, Tracy, you you were ex-city councillor, former city councillor, and uh, we have a municipal election coming up. I just, for just a quick moment, um, I heard from Ramatusi, you were one of the the, the best city councillors. I, I, you know, he gave you high praise. What kinds of things um, could you give to city councillors uh, that are hoping to win a seat? And, and I'm not just talking incumbents as well, but what kinds of things do you think are important for uh, councillors to be mindful of when they're either running or or sitting in that seat? What, what kinds of things should they think about? You know, that's a really great question. And that was really, really kind of uh, of the former city manager to, to comment uh, on that. You know, I always tell people that are that are interested uh, it, it has to be about service. You have to want to serve your community and you have to be really clear about why you're wanting to run. So for example, for myself, when I was considering it back in 2014, I wanted there to be a voice of small business on city council uh, because I saw, you know, who some of the incumbents were, you know, great people, lots of great skill set, but, you know, kind of looking at a lot of the decisions that are made at city council from the policy level uh, do affect small businesses. And of course, most of the businesses here are small business. So I wanted to be that that voice and look at it from that lens on city council. And that's interesting because uh, businesses do look through a different lens and they have to because they have a balance sheet in front of them. <laughs> and if that balance sheet goes down, you know, we have some problems, we can't put food on the table. So from your mindset, it was just a business voice, I think was what you were trying to give. Yeah, looking at it from the the eyes of a small business owner. And, you know, for example, it might be something like uh, the signage bylaw or, you know, there's all kinds of different decisions. That, that, was, that was where I was coming from. Everyone might have different reasons. I also tell people, make sure that you have the time to devote to it. You know, by the time I went that route, uh, you know, our son was a teenager. Uh, I could... I, I could be away more because, of course, you have public hearings late at night. There's a lot of evening work, uh, meeting with uh, residents on the weekends, you know, going driving around town, looking at properties, you know, that might be considering developments. So you have to have the time because it's not only the council meetings on on a Monday and maybe the public hearings every second Tuesday, there's a lot of other work. You know, there's committees that you're on. I was uh, honored with with the mayor appointing me to the Okanagan Basin Water Board, which is something I actually got quite uh, passionate about. A lot of the uh, topics we were working on there. I was the liaison on the Kelowna Chamber of Commerce. I was on the Okanagan Film Commission. All those, you know, busy meetings take place, and and there's all kinds of different, uh, you know different committee meetings even. So you have to have the time in order to really uh, do it properly and then respond to people. You know, again, it's not just the Mondays, it's people email you every day and how responsive do you want to be? And I always was, very, I, I tried to be very responsive to people. 
You you have been very responsive. I you know I've reached out a few times and and uh, somebody who says okay she can't get back to you today but it'll be and and usually within that window you do which is you know kudos to you. The one thing um, and sidebar to that, there is talk about because Kelowna is changing rapidly. It's one of the fastest growing cities and potentially councillors are looking at maybe uh, a pay increase because it, it is turning, as you just said, I mean, that's a lot of hours that people are putting at this. I have, I have two sides to this issue. One is we have to have competent, talented people running for office and make it worthwhile for them to, to take a step back from private life. And the other side of it is though, if, if you're sitting at council and an issue comes up and you have a and you know for the horizon this is a better idea, but there's a popular opinion on the other side to hold on to that seat because you know I make a hundred grand a year in this seat. I'm going to vote this way. Like, any thoughts on, on what do you think could be potentially one of those sides of that? Because you you did it and and you did you served on a lot of committees too. And and I own my business at the same time, Discover Wines, and I was also on, you know, the Board of Prosperity Credit Union and and other things not council related. So I think I think you you know for that and, and councillors do make considerably less than than the than the value that that you that you quoted. Uh, but I, I think the council of the day just really has to look at it, you know, and they have to look at their budgets, they have to look at their needs, and um, you know that would be up to them to to, to decide. Yeah, I know it's it's a very contentious issue, and and <laughs> I didn't want to put you on the hot seat yeah. there, but I mean it is one of those things that's going to be looked at as as uh, the talent comes in for for running for those seats. So I would imagine, you know, at city council, you learned on the local municipal level of how government works, and then you go you go right to the big show uh, in Ottawa. So. That must have been a lot of the things that happened in Kelowna probably were tools that served you well when you moved to Ottawa. I think that, uh, you know, I have a lot of colleagues that are that are there as well that, that did uh, serve on some other level of government, whether it was municipal and and or provincial. Every every step definitely aids in your ability to understand how things work uh, and and you know, just who's responsible for what, quite often that's a big part of it. So, you know, even on on council here, I was also on the regional district, I was a a director. And so that's, of course, regionally, right, it goes from Penticton to Lake Country. And then a lot of that does flow into provincial. So you see sort of how uh, the different provincial ministries work. I attended FCM, which was uh, in Ottawa, and had met with with ministers there at the at the federal level. So you just you really see firsthand how how things work, and and sometimes, you know, you get really interested in something. Uh, I found because you're just exposed to it. Sometimes you don't know what you're going to be passionate about until you until you learn about it. And and I did find that on on a number of different topics. Uh, for myself, I did have to make a decision back in 2018 whether or not I was going to run for council again. And and I thought it wouldn't be it wouldn't be fair to the citizens here to to run for council and then have to step to step back. So uh, I announced I wasn't running again and then was going to seek the uh, to become the candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada. There were a lot of issues that were really resonating with me at the time, and I thought, well, if I want to make a change, I guess I should do something about it. And you did. I, I mean, uh, that takes a lot of courage to to do that. And I think 
further to what you said about meeting some of the people in Ottawa and provincially, it probably helps to know first name basis, like to know they they see the face, they see the name and and because those are some of the connections and partnerships that we need in order to move things forward out of gather. That, you know, that that's part of it. And there's also, you know, all of the, the there's crown corporations, there's the non-governmental groups, and, and it's just a matter of kind of knowing on a particular topic who are all the organizations that might be involved in that. And that really comes from sort of being knee-deep in a topic uh, for a while. And, 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 and I know that even for, for myself, you know, once I became the member of parliament, it's as people reach out to me at the office, lots of times people don't know what uh, a level of government, which one to reach out to. So they'll reach out to us and I'll, you know, we'll be able with confidence to say, oh, this is absolutely municipal. This is provincial. This is federal. And that just comes from, from having a bit of experience. And then yeah. we can, then we can divert people to who can help them the best. I think it's important to have a boatload of empathy <laughs> to really be in your candidate. Cause I mean, just hearing about all, you're basically a switchboard operator at that point. I, I mean, uh, you have to be living and breathing, wanting to serve. Like it, it sounds like to me. I, I, I for, for me, that's what it's all about. It's all about, it's all about service. The people that, uh, that I've hired have, most of them have, customer service background, you know, so it's, it's, it, it, there's a lot of similarity there in how you take care of people, how you respond to people. Of course, we're public service as opposed to customer service. Uh, but we, we say at, at our office, our team says that we're overflowing with opportunities to serve. <laughs> That's a great way to say that. I didn't come up with that. That was, <laughs> that was a member of our team and we've embraced it. I think it's excellent. It's a great summary of, of really how we approach everything. So it's uh it's so nice for you to be in the studio i i mean we have so much to cover we have so much to cover i had the uh the opportunity to sit down with pierre polyev when he came through town um you know this is again a rabbit hole i I don't want to spend too much time here but he uh he seems to be uh, obviously campaigning for the leadership for the conservative party but you know man i i'm blown away by that guy and and it's not very often I'm smitten by a politician, but uh, he's he's winning me over. Like he's he's asking some hard questions, that kind of thing. Just give me, you know, your thoughts yeah. on on Pierre. Well, I've gotten to know him, you know, over the last three three almost three years uh, in in this role, and. You know, so I've seen him behind the scenes, right? You see, you see, you see the Pierre Polyev that you'll see on videos and, and in the House of Commons, and and I've seen how how he works, how hard he works, how well informed he wants to be, and you know how he has a lot of confidence from our caucus as well. That means a lot, you know, when you have so many people that are that are behind them, people that have worked with him even much longer than I have. So that you know that says something. You see what someone's like behind the scenes when the camera isn't on and and so I do have a lot of confidence there I think one of the things that's really amazing in what he's talking about that's resonating with people having to do with uh you know with inflation and a lot of the ideas that he has and and is that there's so many young people that are getting involved you know a lot of when he has these groups there are more young adults involved you know than we've probably seen in a long time and they are, they're frustrated. They're looking for hope. 
Mm-hmm. And he's giving them hope. And, you know, as, as, a, as a movement, as a conservative movement, it's very encouraging to see so many young people want to get involved. Because it's their future, really, that we're all fighting for. Okay, so I, I want to talk a bit about your role in government. And, uh, of course, very busy. And we want to talk about the, the shadow cabinet role for small business recovery and growth. Like, that has got to be a very interesting position you get to of course with your passion about small business tell me a bit about what what is the inner workings what's going on you know tell me about the news Mm-hmm. Well, it's it, it was a real honor to be appointed into this role. Of course, being a former small business owner, I know what it's like to make payroll. You know, I know what it's like to have everything on the line. So I can truly, I can truly empathize. And you know, the year that I opened, I opened uh, Discover Wines back in two thousand and three. That was the year of the Okanagan Mountain Park fires. I opened literally a month before that. We had just barely opened the doors, and we had virtually no sales because of, of course, you know, a third of Kelowna was evacuated. Water bombers flying across the city, and and a, you know, all tourists left. So even though I had a much smaller time period of that. Uh, extreme situation where you think you're going to lose it all because you have no sales, you know, over the course of the pandemic, look at what happened with a lot of businesses, right, with the perpetual lockdowns. And so I could feel it like rate, I could Mm -hmm. feel it, I could Mm -hmm. feel their pain, because I'd been there, but in a much, you know, not as intense way, and it was going to end, you know, soon, you know, with what a lot of small business owners have have been through that they didn't know when it was going to end. And for many of them, it still hasn't, right, they haven't recovered their sales. And a lot of them have got into debt. Uh, So with this rule, it does give me the opportunity to meet with uh, small business owners here locally, and then also nationally as well, you know, across the country, speaking with industry groups all across the country. And so it really gives me a good pulse as to what their key issues are. And and I find too, my my former role uh, was Shadow Minister for International Trade, and then before that was Interprovincial Trade. And what I find, what I found with all of those rules is there is a lot of crossover mm-hmm. because especially when you're dealing with supply chain issues, which is such a big issue right now. And because of my previous roles, you know, I was meeting with different maybe types of stakeholders. I can really, really see how, how everything fits together and, and, you know, where some of the pressure points are b- because of that. And, and so I, I continually uh, meet with organizations and, and meet with businesses because the more feedback they give, me, the better I can understand what the real issues are and I can better advocate on their behalf. Okay, so you you have this position in, in shadow cabinet in the official opposition. Um, do we get to, uh, I guess, you're advocating for small business. Do you get to feel moving the needle? Like, because obviously that is a, a major role, especially through lockdowns and, and pandemic related issues. But do you feel the needle move when you you were there? I, I think it's a matter of elevating what the issues are. And every time that something comes forth, especially when I hear there's there's an issue that's maybe not just industry specific or, or regionally specific, you know that it's something greater. When you start hearing about a topic across different sectors, across the country, you know that there's something really there. And so I always think, okay, what's the best way to approach this? Is this a matter of reaching out to the minister's office? Is this a matter of uh, bringing it up in the House of Commons uh, during question period? 
you know, and, and asking lots of questions on this particular topic. Is this putting a statement out, making recommendations, maybe bringing forth to a committee that uh, might want to study a particular issue? So, you know, for example, the, the committee that I'm on right now is the Industry and Technology Committee. We were doing a study on the effects of competitiveness dealing with issues around the pandemic for small and medium business. So you can kind of take different topics and go, okay, let's really delve into this. Let's bring experts in uh, to testify, which might be businesses, organizations, uh, it might be uh, academia, all kinds of different groups. And then out of that comes recommendations. So Mm -hmm. we can actually make recommendations to the government. And so it just really depends on what the issue is that we, you know, I can kind of look at what is the best angle for this. Right. And is it is it great enough that we really need to that we really need to focus on it? Well, I just from the standpoint of I have several clients uh, that I deal with that are small, medium sized businesses. And, you know, when when you had those lockdowns and the the Walmarts of the world, the Amazons of the world were continuing to feed. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people were just sitting there going, what next? I mean, honestly, what next? And and they're fighting the good fight and they're trying to keep local people employed, pay taxes, keep the lights on. And and it just felt like there was an overwhelming force for them. And and so I I truly appreciate that kind of work. Yeah, thank you. And, and that is a very good example of how how the policies were, and some of them were, were of course, uh, you know, provincial, we have to acknowledge that, but still just on, on the greater scope, where you would have these international, you know, multinational or very large national, almost monopolies in many cases that could be open, selling products that weren't just necessities like prescriptions and food, you know, they could sell houseware items and, you know, all cup pool supplies and all kinds of things. And yet the small businesses that sold all those other items were closed. Mm-hmm. And that was really, really unjust. You know, even, uh, you know, when you look at at how, how it affected them. So, you know, right next door, there could be a small business that sold the same products and they had to, they were closed. And again, you know, a lot of that was was provincial. Uh, however, you, you can just see how it really, really affected things. And, and that's why we can't really go down that road again. Uh, we we ha- there there are other solutions. There mm-hmm. are other ways that we can operate so that small business owners don't lose everything, and a lot of them have. Keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> I will. So again, there's so much I want to cover here. Let's talk a bit about um, the surveys. I saw them in my mailbox. I responded. Um, does that give you more of a, I guess, a bird's eye view of, of what patterns you see across a constituency? Like it, that, that must've given you a tremendous amount of feedback. Absolutely. And so as a member of parliament through the, uh, parliamentary printing services, everyone ha- all members of parliament have access to send out, you know, different types of communication within, uh, within their constituency. And so I've done a number of surveys. Not you know, not everyone phones the constituency office or might email. This is just another way of of communication to myself and and another way that I can get feedback. And it is amazing how many thousands of people fill out those surveys and send them in. And there's different ways. like some people will screenshot it and then mail it or uh, or or they'll mail them in. And so it, it really does give very, 
good information because then I can speak with confidence in when I'm in Ottawa saying, this is what I'm hearing. I have heard this from thousands and thousands of people. You know, it's not just a, a, a few. And it would be from all parts of the community, all different, you know, demographics. And so it's really useful. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one example. One of my uh, recent ones that was in the spring had to do with, with grocery prices. And at the time, when you look at inflation, it, it doesn't cover everything right? It, it's not every single item that's sold. And so the feedback that I got was that most people said that their grocery bills were going up 20 or even 30%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whereas inflation was showing at around 10%. So now some of that might be regional, uh, and some of it might be the products that people are buying. But when you have a huge amount of people, I think it was over 70% of people fell into that category. That's a lot. And that 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 says something that just how much uh, food inflation was affecting people. And then people would, would have stories that they would write. You know, one that I remember was um, uh, someone saying that he was a dad, a family of five, and he goes without eating some meals so that his kids can eat. He's never been in that position. You know, seniors that say they're on a fixed income and they they're finding it tougher to just buy food, and so those stories, th- those those um, examples are real. And I can and I do I bring those into the House of Commons when in, during question period and when I'm making statements because it's actually what's happening in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Well, the Prime Minister uh, did indicate a while back that there actually was an inflation, so that was helpful. I felt <laughs> well. I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are, right? So, and and you know, people people know what they're what they're paying when they go to the grocery store, or they're buying other goods, or putting gas in their car. So, it shows how out of touch he is. So we have this uh, great big body of water um, that we all get a lot of enjoyment out of. Uh, let's call it a cooling center. Let's call it a family fun park. It's the Okanagan Lake, and we love it. And uh, now I, I didn't realize this when you when you spoke about different issues that come across your desk that you find yourself curious about and you start diving in you actually start getting this this momentum about it because again it just it, it touches something and you're like I, I I'm gonna dive in on this and for me I made fun of of the invasive muscles campaign because it was have the talk and it, you know there was a whole bunch of side part of that I have a weird sense of humor anyway but again when i start hearing about the ramifications of invasive muscles and the fact that we have this could be so devastating for for the lake and for well again the ripple effect what what did it mean when there was basically a, a downloading of that program onto municipalities like it seemed like just abdication of of really a fundamental need that we need to monitor this. Right. So for the invasive aquatic mussels, which would be for for us here, zebra and uh, zebra and quagga mussels, I first got really passionate about this when I was on the Okanagan Basin Water Board uh, for four years, and I had the privilege of chairing for two years, and you know, really digging into this issue and the. Anyone that's sort of familiar with this invasive muscle issue would have been because of the uh, advocacy and the communication from the Okanagan Basin Water Board, and they continue to do that. So a, a lot of the, the, the 
provincial government has stepped up in many ways on this. Uh, however, there are still gaps. And, you know, we feel that there needs to be more federal leadership on this because the further away that we can keep these aquatic invasive mussels from British Columbia, the better. You know, it doesn't, uh, the, the, the province of BC only has authority over BC. So we've got to keep them as, as far away as possible. Uh, the uh, CBSA does do checks when people are coming across from the United States. However, it's it's not as stringent coming across Canada and any of the of the watercraft that have had invasive mussels on them over the last few years have come from eastern eastern Canada that uh, you know because they would stop them actually at the at the US border so that's a real concern and we continue to advocate for that i know the Okanagan Basin Water Board continues to advocate uh, you know really looking at what is the mitigation what is containment? You know, what are the issues? And I had an opportunity to question the fisheries minister, federal fisheries minister on this recently, and was really surprised at, at you know, the, the lack of, of concern. You know, she, she was aware of the situation, but uh, one of the uh, one of the issues that the Okanagan Basin Water Board had written the federal government on was that they're, they're concerned that, that DFO, which is, you know, the, the fisheries department had said that it was okay to put, um, there's a certain classification of product in order to, to put it into the water to get rid of the mussels. And I mean, to be blunt, it's basically pesticides and chemicals. Sure. And so my questioning to the minister was like, do you think this is okay? And why would your department say this? You know, the water board and their experts say it won't, our lake is too large. And so, you know, why Why is this being considered as the way to eradicate invasive mussels if they get here in the Okanagan watershed? It's very concerning. Just pour a bunch of bleach in the water and that was their solution. Yeah, there's all kinds of different chemicals and it's it's very concerning. There has to be other, other solutions and there has to be more done in order to protect them from coming into British Columbia and in fact, Western Canada. Okay, so I, <laughs> this is a... A very personal issue for me, but it's, you know, it, it fundamentally, I've, I've taken my kids on the rail trail. I love the fact that we have this amenity and, and it just, it brings me so much joy whenever we get out there. We don't get out there as often as I would like, but we've rollerbladed, we've, uh, we've biked it, we've walked it. Um, it, it's a fantastic amenity. Um, but when you get around the airport, there's a there's a break and you know a lot of people are asking when is this going to be done what are we doing with it that kind of thing any thoughts no i appreciate you asking that this uh, this topic with the okanagan rail trail was actually one of the first first things that i started advocating for when i became the the member of parliament and and I've been doing that in, in as many ways as possible. I've had what are called take note debates, which are really late at night over different topics, you know, de debating this, bringing it up with the uh, uh, with the minister responsible. I've, uh, you know, there's been petitions that have been done locally here, uh, you know, writing the minister. And so, you know, over, over the course of all of this correspondence, really what it is is about the federal government doing and what's called addition to reserve. And they're working with all the stakeholders that uh, we, we've been told uh, that are involved in this, and they're getting close. Uh, 
So I'll continue to press on this. That's really the only uh, update that I have, but it is it is top of mind, absolutely. And I'll, I'll continue to press on this. I know the the government is well aware that I'm that I'm advocating for this. It's it's uh, the file is is um, sounds like it's not you know buried in a, in a bottom drawer. They it seems like they there is some activity, but uh, we'll just wait to see. Uh, we'll I'll keep pressing this for sure. There seems to be a, a balance between uh, persistence and and you just you know there's a invisible line we step over where you know you're just doing more harm than good if if you continue to knock on the door. I, I would imagine that's the same in government. Well, I, I think it's a matter of just making them aware how important it is for the community, mm-hmm. and and many people have have reached out to, you know, to to the to the federal government on this. So so. They know how important it is to our community, and so I want to make sure that they that they make this a priority. And so that's why we'll keep pressing. So uh, I was taking my son and daughter to Mexico, and uh, uh, we realized, oh no, um, Tessa's passport is expired. No problem. You know, we'll go down to the passport office, and then they said, okay, you just gotta ship it off. It went to Gatineau, Quebec, and then. Uh, I think it was two weeks before we were about to leave because you have to supply the airport ticket as well. Uh, we found out Gatineau had done nothing with it. And they said, okay, well, no problem. We'll send it to Surrey and you just need to zip out to Surrey and and uh, and get it signed off and everything else. That is irresponsible. <laughs> like, I, I mean, again, I just... I'm some people need their passport for work. Some, you know, there's, there's some medical emergencies. There's a whole bunch of things, obviously regarding international travel. What is going on and, and how are we getting better at fixing this? Well, thank you. I would say right now, the uh, passport issue is one of the top issues that I'm hearing about at our constituency office. A lot of people are stressed. They're worried. Uh, The federal government is underperforming in almost every department that they have. And so it's a real lack of, of just, you know, focusing on really what their, what their duties are. And, and it's, it's a lack of leadership from the, from the, uh, from the ministers, you know, the, a lot of the employees, the federal employees are hardworking, they're doing the best that they can, you know, based on based on what they have, but it's it's a real lack of a focus from from the ministers, you know, they're focusing on other things, as opposed to making sure that the departments are, are running well. And we see this with everything doesn't matter whether it's immigration or, you know, CRA, I mean, we're just flooded with calls every day, people can't get through, there's delays. And and passports is, is the big one right now, they're not meeting they, they haven't been meeting their minimum standards. They've actually now, you know, on their website, uh, have updated how long things will take. And so people have waited months and months and months. And the interesting thing is that there, there's not a huge increase in passport processing from what is nor- in normal, normal times before COVID. So yes, it's up over last year, but that should be expected. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that should have been planned out. And so it's it, the processing volumes are sort of what what we've heard are very what normally would be, and so why are they taking so long? Even though there's been so many more people hired, and so what's happening now is you know people are they're getting close to their travel time, 
and they don't have their passports. And you're absolutely right. They're being told to to drive to Surrey. And so this is this is another uh, thing that I've been working on. I started on this in the, in the spring. We did some research, and you know we know that the the CMA around Kelowna is one of the fastest growing. It is the fastest growing region in the province, and. When we looked at other communities that had similar populations, there are other communities across the country that have the ability in order to print passports and they have more services. They have that extra service at their passport office that we do not have here in Kelowna. So we gave the justification to the minister with with just straight data. You know, here's why we think Kelowna should have this service added to the passport office and also looked at regionally, because when you look at how much closer it is to come to Kelowna than have to go to Surrey or Calgary, in the southern BC, there's actually 700,000 people that are affected that could come to Kelowna rather than going to Surrey or Calgary. So based on that, uh, there's huge support for, you know, my request to to increase the services here in Kelowna. Uh, the SILGA, which is the Southern Interior Local Government Association, they represent 37 municipal governments in all of you know Southern BC. They have uh, written a comment of support, the Kelowna Chamber of Commerce, Thompson Okanagan Tourism Association. And so, you know, it, it's great to have them also advocating and we're saying, you know, they're helping me along with this, saying, yes, we we support this. We think this is a good idea, and I'm going to continue to advocate for that. I know the minister this week had announced uh, some extra services being a- added across Canada, but this this type of service wasn't added to Kelowna, and we're going to continue to press for that. That is potentially one of the issues as we voted uh, a wonderful conservative for our region. <laughs> I, I can't say. I mean, I can't. I can't. I can't but, uh, answer that. I, I think you know. And we didn't look at where you know the the other location. What the, what they haven't added on actually is this other level. What they did was they gave other communities extra services, but not the service that we're asking for. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll continue to you know be factual and and present the facts to the minister why why we should have this here in in Kelowna to serve not only Kelowna Lake Country residents but the entire region. So, Tracy, you are on the Standing Committee of Industry and Technology. I have to bring this up because I'm a Rogers customer. <laughs> the uh, the outage created a little bit of an issue um, across Canada. And and I know I haven't seen, I, I guess there was some sort of kickback or, or rebate or something like that. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but I would imagine that that's taken up some time on that committee. Yes, absolutely. And we, well, we made it a priority. So as the official opposition, as the conservative official opposition, we requested that a meeting be, uh, emergency meetings be held for the Industry and Technology Committee to dig into this issue with the outage from Rogers. And so we had at that, we had, we had the minister, we had uh, CR, the CRTC, and we also had Rogers. And what really came out of the questioning and testimony from that committee meeting was that that there was really a lack of um, a, a lack of concern from the CRTC. They're the regulator, you know, and they, from a risk point of view, they they should have really uh, been pressing the telecoms previous to this happen for what their mitigation plans are. 
it was a comment that I made at committee, which was actually picked up a lot by national media, was that when I was questioning the CRTC representatives, that it actually sounded like I was questioning someone from a telecom, the way that they were answering. They're the regulator, mm-hmm. you know, they should be pressing. And also uh, a lack of leadership from from the minister's end, because there was an outage, a 911 outage, uh, about a year and a half ago. And there was really nothing that came out of that. So this was actually the second one. The concerning thing with this one uh, that we had found out was that uh, it wasn't only 911 across much of the country, but also emergency alerts. So during the time that it was down, there was one uh, emergency alert from law enforcement that never went out to the community. And there were three tornado warnings that wow. no one saw in the in the emergency alert. So that's very concerning. Uh, they need to have, it's obvious that there needs to be backups and different mitigation in place. And uh, so all, anyone that wants to watch that, uh, that it was two committee meetings in one day, it was almost the entire day is all online. It's all in the parliament. It's very, it's extremely interesting and, and it's concerning. So it is concerning. Yeah. Do, do they ever, because the one letter I I read from the president of Rogers saying, we're still not exactly sure what happened, <laughs> which is that to me is troubling when, when a, a national service provider doesn't really know, do, do you have any knowledge? They, well, I mean, they, they had gone through at the committee, the technical parts of it. Uh, but I think what was, what, what was notable was that it it was internally created. It wasn't it wasn't like a uh, weather event. It mm-hmm. wasn't a cyber attack. It was it was created internally, and there weren't mitigation or other alternatives that were in place. And so, one of the CRTC's mandates is actually to ins- to ensure that we have a functioning nine one one and emergency alert system. And so, they did not fulfill that mandate. And you know the 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 lack of concern of how they were going to press for this uh, was there. You know they had asked qu- Rogers questions. They gave them a whole list of questions that Rogers had responded to. But you know what's the next step now? And uh, and you know what what is the minister and what is what is the CRTC also going to do in order to prevent things like this before or or other situations that might happen? And that's part of the regulator. I mean I've worked a lot of my career in regulated environments. You know whether the financial sector through you know credit union or or um, through you know working in the in the beverage industry and so I've seen that whole regulator side mm-hmm. and you can either be you know proactive or reactive and you know a lot of other regulators can be more proactive you know looking at risk assessments and you know asking for um, mitigation plans and things like that and so. Well, there, there's still more work to do there, but you know those first committee meetings were very revealing. I think the next uh, item on that agenda is uh, why we paid the highest data rates across the country. Yeah. So that's the other one you can look at. Okay, so we have this uh, conflict in Ukraine. Um, we have a prime minister that uh, seems to really be a fan of helping out foreign interests, um, except Western energy. Uh so I, I, I don't know why that is. Again, I'd love to speak to him about it and uh, I'll keep my emotions in check. But, you know, this this whole turbine issue, um, can you speak to that on, on what happened and, and why this is even occurring? So with the turbine, uh, we, Canada, has sanctions, has sanctions with, uh, with Russia and they re- temporarily removed 
uh, certain sanctions in order to allow this turbine to go to Russia, in order to provide uh, mostly Germany, you know, with um, with fuel. And however, <laughs> you know, we, we've seen now through the through the what's happening and through the media that this has played out. And so it it it's like, you know, Russia has sort of, you know, called, you know, called the bluff saying, well, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to turn the tap on. And that's that's what they've done. They've actually reduced uh, the flows t- to Germany. And so, you know, either you're going to have sanctions in place or not. And, you know, we've stood up saying that that was not a good uh, decision to do that. It really, we lose credibility, you know, doing doing that. And the results haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, we could, Canada could be providing... Europe could be providing the the EU with LNG, you know, but we don't have pipelines, we don't have the capacity here. In fact, you know, the Prime Minister has made it really clear that he wants to wind down the energy sector here. And so, you know, while we have allies that are in need, and one way or another, whether Canada provides or not, the, the need is still there, you know, we could definitely be a solution. You know, we have some of the most envir- environmentally strong policies in the world, human rights. And so if anyone should be helping helping allies and, uh, and not regimes, uh, it, it should be Canada. And we should be proud to do that. And that's where our focus really, really should be. It, it, it is uh, troubling, um, disconcerting, and puzzling um, that he doesn't seem to advocate for really a sector that could could really help uh, and benefit all Canadians and including indigenous people and and I'm just I'm I'm just always confused at uh, at why our prime minister continues to just uh, try to push down that sector and, and it, again I, again I just uh, I don't quite understand uh, what the mandate is but um, only he would know I guess. Let's talk a little bit about airports and and the fact that uh, we had, you know, there's been a few things with airports. We had uh, Sam Samadar in here talking about the designation and how that changed. Let's talk a bit about your work with the airports and the fact that <laughs> there's there's a lot of things going on with airports right now. Absolutely. I mean, there has been a lot over the last couple of years, and, and I've flown all the way through it. So I've seen everything from, you know, being in uh, Toronto Pearson, seeing only a couple flights on the board to, you know, it, it opening up again. So I've, 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 you know, lived, lived through that the entire time. And, and I think a lot of it too is about keep, keeping, uh, keeping people safe, you know, and making sure that you got, you have processes in place. I, I think that we're at a phase now where, you know, you're, you're seeing, of course, it's all over the news, a lot of the bottlenecks. The, the Arrive Can app is definitely not helping, or as I call it, the Arrive Can't app. Uh, I, you know, have I love a, that name. A lot of people, uh, a lot of people have, uh, you know, reached out to me, especially a lot of seniors. You know, not not everyone has has a smartphone. Not everyone can do an, an app on their phone. Uh, now there is a process that you can do on a computer, but even that doesn't work 
for, you know, for some people when, when they're traveling, especially. And, and I find the ones that have really been affected a lot by this are seniors. Like mm-hmm. they're just, no, they're, they're, it's, I've had many people very upset in my constituency office telling me their story and, and just how, how difficult it was for them. I just uh, recently, there was a, a, a couple, a senior that had been told that they had to quarantine, even though they're double vaccinated and everything. And uh, they, you know, we had to have them sign some paperwork so that we could look into some things for them and, and they, they don't have a computer. So we couldn't email them, you know, the information. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going to their home, you know, knocked on the door, stood way back, you know, left the clipboard for them. They, they filled it all out. I, I, I picked it up later in the day. I mean, those are the kind of things we have to do because not everybody has, has computers. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to look into what we could for them. So the, we know that the Arrive Can app is, is, is slow, slowing things down. Uh, that, that's well, you know, well reported. So, so that's the first part. You know, then, then there's the whole processes, which, of course, you know, you've got the government's policies, but then you've also got, you know, the airports themselves and then the airlines. So all along the way, you know, everyone has to work together. And, you know, there, there were a lot of people that were let go or, or, or you know, weren't, weren't working for a while because of the slowdowns. Uh, we know that there were many people that, that were essential, they were classified as essential service. They flew, you know, everyone was safe, masks, you know, lots of sanitization. And then all of a sudden one day they have to be vaccinated or else they're not working. And so, of course, you know, anytime that you let go thousands of people in, in a particular industry, there's going to be some issues and not everyone can be trained, you know, new hires to be trained up right away. And of course, we've as the official opposition have been very vocal that we're, you know, against vaccine mandates. And there's other ways of, of having people safe. We've been very, very clear with that. But this is another example of sort of how this plays out. That's just one piece of it. And so it's, uh, I, I know that, you know, the industry is really uh, trying to work. They've made many recommendations to the government, including removing the Arrive Can app. And uh, that hasn't happened yet. So I went through the border a couple of days ago and uh, <laughs> he's and I thought from through land, you didn't have to use the arrive can and turns out you do. Mm-hmm. And it was late and I'd been driving all day and, and I looked at him and I said, I don't uh, have that. I would like and I, you know, he could just see the, the my eyelids fluttering and he said, you know what? You do get a one-time exemption. So would you like to use that, sir? I said, absolutely. So for the listeners, yeah. you do get a one-time exemption from the Arrive Cant app. It's That's new. So that's 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 good that they've gone in that direction. We forgot to mention uh, the international designation for Cologne Airport. Uh, we forgot to talk about that because there were some... I mean, that created, uh, uh, again, a, a whole bunch of ripple effect. And again, Sam Samadar you know, talked about how important that designation is. Can you speak to what happened behind the scenes to get that back? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So this was another example where there were uh, services uh, that were able to happen in other parts of the country and and not here. And so, and and it wasn't justified. I know that the, and, and this is all, you know, they've all been very public about this, that that the airport management here at the Cologne International Airport was asking for, what do they need to do? 
What do they need to do in order to, to gain back the international designation? Because there were other airports that were being given that designation that had less volume. And so where are the gaps? What are the metrics that you're using? Uh, they did have testing right on site that was approved of by Interior Health. So, you know, what what more do they need? And there was no answers. And, and it seemed really unjust that there were other communities that started to get this designation and we didn't. And so I started to advocate for that. Again, a lot of local groups, local governments, government organizations starting to advocate as well. We put a lot of pressure on the government that it was widely uh, widely written about in, in the media and it really started to get some traction. And so finally, we uh, the next time, uh, which was shortly after that the government was announcing some more international designations, Kelowna was added to it. I mean, really, it was, it was you know, it, it gave us a disadvantage because there were other airports that people could fly into, not here. Mm-hmm. And there was no justification. You know, you can you can see if there was certain metrics they were using, like I said, or certain justification. Then you can work towards that. Okay, what do we need to do to to make this happen? But there was radio silence, nothing. And so, it is it political? What what are the reasons? And so that's why I really elevated it, and and we did get that international designation shortly after. It's going to be. Um... I'm going to say frustrating at times because your official opposition and, you know, you can, you have different channels at your disposal. And I know that, you know, you have to work the channels and you have to follow process, but does it ever get frustrating? Because again, your constituents, they want action and you're trying to push the buttons in the right order and you're trying to follow procedure, but does it ever build up where you go, like, I'm just trying to get an answer? Like does because I, I think this government seems to be very good at radio silence at times. Well, what we see with this government is that they're really good at announcements. They're really good at photo ops, but when it comes to actual action and results, it's it's not there often. You know, they're really good at 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 talking and taking pictures, and so it's a matter of bringing that information forth to say this. This is how your your policy, regulation, whatever it is, is actually affecting people, businesses, not-for-profits, whatever it is, and bringing it to light. Because I, it seems like lots of times they may not take all of that into consideration. You know, they're kind of looking at the talking point around it rather than, than what it actually means and putting your head down and just doing the hard work to really uh, reach out to industry, whether it's industry groups or whatever, to really gain insight so that whatever decision you're making is is truly the best one for the region or, or for the country. And so that's what we're continually doing is, is saying, you know, sometimes that hard work is, you know, it's not just the photo ops and, 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 and the talking points, you've actually got to put your head down and, and, and work hard and, and come up with the best solutions. And so that's where we're focused. So I have to ask, I mean, <laughs> You, you ran for a position. It's, it's a public profile, obviously. There must have been some impetus for, for you to do that. I mean, was it frustration? I mean, where, where did this stem from? Because again, a lot of people are not going to run for an MP because they, they realize how much work it is, the frustration, the, the public attacks. Like, I mean, there's an, there's a great side, I'm sure. (laughs) 
but there's also this this cost. Um, is it what you thought it would be? And, and is this uh, still a passion for you? Well, I, I get up every day and I'm just so I feel so blessed and honored to be in this role. And and I and I truly feel like like I, I can be a voice for people. You know, I I always look at a lot of situations, like I said earlier, where does this fit? How can I help this person? You know, just because something is a certain way doesn't mean that it has to be. And and it, is there a way that we can maybe change that? And and you know, a lot of people do come to the constituency office with really you know, really serious issues. And lots of times we, not not always, you know, because sometimes depending on the situation or, you know, what the regulations are, they're, you know, based on their issue. But, you know, if, if we can help someone, we, we do. And and people really appreciate that. They know how, how serious we take it. It is really about service and and wanting to make a difference for people. And, and that's what it's about for me, like just really being people's voice, you know, being because they they're not they're not in Ottawa, you know they can write a letter, but you know the, they're they're not there. Actually, you know that's what my job is, and so I look at my role as being their venue in order to have their voice heard, mm-hmm. and that's why I look for so much input locally so that I can be really clear about you know what I'm asking for and and giving very specific examples. I'll always ask people, you know, can I use your can I use your name or can I use the situation? And and those ones are the most meaningful because it's not just a big, you know, 50,000 foot topic. It's actually boots on the ground. This is how this is help hurting or affecting this family or this person. And what can we do? Because it's not, you know, it, it's it's not good for their family or it's hurting them. So, I've, you know, that that's where I'm at. I'm just, I, I just consider it such an honor. And, and I know, you know, a lot of the, time that I've been in has been during the pandemic. I've talked to a lot of MPs that have done this a really long time. And they've said the last few years of everything is just sped up the the amount of um, incoming correspondence, the amount of issues. If you think of everything that we've been through over the last couple of years, uh, you know, Service Canada offices were closed, where they go to your, you know, they reach out to their MP and, and, and my team has worked so incredibly hard. You know, I'm just so so proud of them. We work together really as a team, all of us here and in Ottawa, depending on what the needs are. Right. And we can mobilize very quickly as issues come up. So I'm I'm really proud of the work that that we do and and just a, it's an honor to be in this role while I'm in it. It's been a pleasure. And and uh Tracy, thanks for taking the time. I really hope there's a federal election in the fall. Can you any any ideas, any thoughts, please? Anything? You know, when we are in a minority government, you have to be ready for an election at any time. Fair. So uh, we we don't know. Uh, there's a lot of variables in place. I mean, really, the prime minister is the only one that knows if he's going to call an election. He's the only one that that knows, you know, when when that is. Uh, of course, we're we're in this uh, loose coalition between the NDP and and the Liberal right now federally. We'll have to see once we get back to Ottawa how how tight that is and how that stays together. So, you know, we'll keep pressing as the official opposition in all the ways that we can to bring the important issues forth for, you know, for for our communities. You know, I'll do that certainly for Kelowna Lake Country and and we'll we'll do that for Canadians and but we've always got to be ready. In a minority government, you just never know. 